You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I got to tell you, people, I uh, I was out yesterday and my, my neighbors already put up their Christmas lights, which really irritates me because it's way too early. And it's not like just regular Christmas lights. It's like the whole the whole nativity scene and everything. So please wait a little bit. It's it's. I went to the store looking before Halloween, looking for stuff, and it was all Christmas stuff. Just wait. Give us time. Anyway, we have a great show today. Uh, my guest is a uh, very talented gentleman. He's uh, he got a solo career. He was guitarist for Frankie Goes to Hollywood. My guest is Brian Nash. How you doing, Brian? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm doing well. So you you live over there in England. Did they start up with all the Christmas stuff really early too? Yeah, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's usually in the shops. I, I think um, the supermarkets usually start stocking it the day after Halloween. So it, it is. Um, you will be, if, if you were going around supermarkets now, you would probably hear all the Christmas tunes being played. It's insane. One, one, of, our old, one of our old ones is usually included as well. I have, I have been in. I've, I have been out doing a bit of Christmas shopping and had the power of love occasionally booming to a crappy PA system in a shop. It's insane. So now I got to ask you, it's funny, you know, you know, you know, you go by Nasher now, which is funny because my last name's Cooper and everybody calls me Cooper. Have you always yeah. been called Nasher? I was called that when I was in school and um, I don't know really, it's, it's uh, most people call me Nasher, but, but they feel like it's... Um, I don't know, Brian. Brian's just a bit lame, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know anybody who likes who likes their Christian name. Do you like your Christian name? You know what? I'm called Steve, but all my life, everybody's called me my last name, Cooper, so I'm pretty much used to it. I went to a, uh, one of my friend's fathers passed away, and I went to the memorial service yesterday, and I met my friend's yeah. wife's mom, and I introduced myself as Steve. She had no idea who I was, and then his wife says, oh, that's Cooper, and she goes, oh, okay, so I'm used to it, so I like it. Yeah, I like I like Cooper as a as a first name. Yeah, well, it's quite a first name. And a lot of a lot of dogs have been named Cooper lately. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I gotta ask you. You know, you're you're a musician. You're you're as I say. You know, you've had a you've had a lifetime career in music. When did you start? And when did you get into music? Because me and you were the same age. And I know growing up in America, I caught on to like the different. English 80s bands, but in the early days, I was a kid of uh, classic rock. What were your influences yeah. when you were a kid, and what made you pick up the guitar? Um, I'll tell you, the, the, the real change for me, and, and for a lot of people, in Merseyside, I mean, well, like, when you're in school and that, you're listening to all kinds of stuff, because you're, you're borrowing records off guys in your class, some of whom had older brothers. And uh, you'd be listening, you know, that's how you'd find out about your Led Zeppelins and your Deep Purples and Rush and stuff like that. And uh, But the real game changer, I think, for me uh, as a musician was, well, or, or something that made me want to be a musician, was, was punk and, and specifically going to the Eric's Club in... Uh, in Liverpool, which is a famous punk club, you know, that spawned Tears Up Explodes, Big in Japan, Echo on the Bunny Man, or Castle Maneuvers, the list goes on. And, and all of the, you know, it's, um, at the time that was happening, towards, the, you know, from about 1977, 78, through to about 82, they, they started doing um, matinee shows for under 16. So whoever was playing on a Saturday night, would do a matinee show and you know get double their money basically for uh, performing and uh, you know the first time I went I went to see a band called Magazine at, at a matinee and you know previous to that pop, pop stars or bands that you liked played in big theatres and they were kind of inaccessible and and, you know, unless you wanted to hang around the stage door in the freezing cold for hours afterwards. Going to these matinee shows at Eric's, it made it seem like, uh, oh, you know, this, these guys who turned up and played, they just look, looked like us, you know. And it made it seem like it was um, achievable, you know, that you could become a musician. I mean, some of the bands I saw, like uh, The Cure, when The Cure were... Uh, Promoting three imaginary boys. I was in Eric's for about 
five other kids, you know, 16 year olds. Seeing them, skids, stiff little fingers, wire. Seeing the first ever tears of explode gig. And it was just, uh, and no sooner have you felt part of this club that it was closed down on uh, spurious charges by the local council for supposed drug dealing happening going on in there, which was a fallacy. And um, it was that was that was what we made me want to be in a band. Punk, punk made it. What was the possible? What was the punk? What, what was the punk scene like for you? I mean, was it like they say it was divided? There was punks, there was mods, or was that just a fallacy? What was it like being a young guy into punk in England? Um, well, see, whilst being into punk and wearing safety pins in your jacket and uh, anti-Nazi league and rock against racism badges, I was still listening to stuff like The Who and all that. You know, I've never been... Um, I've never been a musical fascist. Apart from now, I just hate everything. <laughs> but, you know, back then, it, it, it was... Um, I, have, I have fantastic arguments to this day with my brother-in-law, who was a punk, and he grew up, and he's seen, the, he's seen the Clash play over 50 times when he was a kid. You know, he was a couple of years older than me. And, um, he, he, you know, you, you try to talk to him about something, and he goes like, nah, they were the enemy, they were the enemy. And I'm saying, man, you can't... You can't be so closed, you know. <laughs> but uh, it, it's uh, it's always a debate, isn't it, about music? I mean, whilst it, uh, it unites a lot of us, I mean, especially back when I was a kid, you know, you, you, there's a uh, that whole concept uh, which is completely disappears from uh, from what I can make out amongst young people of sitting around together in a room and listening to music. You know, music. Uh, listening to music now has become largely a a solitary participation, you know, everyone's got their their earplugs in when they're on when they're on the tube or they're going to work. And um, music is not I don't think you have that communal thing of uh, of people sitting down together. And, and you know, that's probably because you can't skin up on an on a, a mobile phone. <laughs> right. <laughs> now now you you'd like to now when did you pick up a guitar for the first time? I would have been about, um, I'm guessing about 12 or 13. My cousin, uh, Mark O'Toole, who was the bass player in Frankie, both, uh, uh, both him and his two brothers, uh, Jared and Vincent, um, played in a band. They were called Mark Two because the guy who played drums was Mark and Mark was on bass. So like when Mark O'Toole was about 13 years old, they were doing gigs in, in social clubs um, around Liverpool, uh, and that was I, I used to sit in the in the old school bedroom and you know listen to them play and and Mark showed me the first handful of chords and then then you, you're off and running and you're listening to your records and and, and trying to work out how to play the intro to Alternative All Star by Stiff Little Fingers and. All the other, all the other bells of tunes from back in the day, but that's that's what started it for me. And I see that thing with punk as well. It was that um, it took the A levels out of music. That it wasn't really about uh, about playing all the right notes in the right order. It was about playing some notes in any order with with you know a load of attitudes. And it made you know the whole DIY. Um, ethic of, of punk from people making their own sleeves and putting their own records out is uh, it made it seem real you know it, you didn't need a record deal now so you're playing guitar now when is the early formation of Frankie Goes to Hollywood I believe you were in the early formation then you left and came back how did the whole band start well what, what happened I, I was in a band with, with Peter Gill and Mark O'Toole's brother Jared and we were rehearsed. There was a there was an old Victoria police station in uh, in Liverpool, and we all a lot of bands used to rehearse in there. So you would have people swapping swapping uh, bands, you know, like oh, I don't like them anymore. I've moved on, and I'm going to be in with this other band. And all the cells, the bands used to rehearse in the cells. So um, me and Ped and Jed O'Toole were in a band, and then Jed O'Toole left. And 
Ireland. Uh, then Holly came in, and then Ped left, and Ped started doing some stuff with Marco too, and Jed then joined them on guitar, and then Holly joined them. So like, I, I guess it would have been about 1982 in this where this police cell was. It was in the city centre, but there was nothing. Nothing around at that time. There was the, the, the buildings all around it were all derelict. And I remember the first time hearing Mark and Ped playing together. They were playing what what would become two tribes um, out in the in the, the courtyard of this building. And it, it was that was kind of um, Mark was a big fan. Both Mark and Ped were big fans of Bow Wow Wow. So that was the kind of thing they were going for. It was like a very very uh, bass and, and drum heavy um, backing tracks really and the guitar was just a few power chords over the top of it and then they were doing a couple of gigs and yet uh, it, it seemed like this thing was going to become quite serious and moving on uh, you know in a direction with more than just being in a band in a rehearsal room that we were going to try and get they were going to try and get a record deal and all that and then uh, Jed had uh, a young lad and he had a job and he stepped aside and I I took his place and uh, and that was that really. <laughs> now, how did you guys start becoming popular? What do you think it was and what was it like recording the early music? Um, well, to be, to be honest, it was the, in, in terms of uh, getting signed, you know, you hear about bands playing for years and years before getting a sniff of a record deal. But we, I think we only did about maybe a dozen gigs when, when I was in the band, if that, really, before we got signed. Because we had the two girls dressed up in all the leather. You know, there's, there's, uh, there's some footage of that out on the internet now that, you, that, you know, the very first video we did, which actually I wasn't in, Jed was in that video, the very first Hope and Anchor video, which was like a kind of one camera shoot. And um, our manager at the time was a guy called Bob Johnson. He was looking after the roots and Aztec camera. And he was taking the um, this VHS cassette around to uh, to various record labels. And he would um, he said, like, oh, the, the, the A&R guy, go, let's go to the video conference room, you know, to watch this. And people had actually heard about this video because the music industry is quite an incestuous thing. So, if you know, these A&R guys, they all hang out together. They're all keeping each other in a job, you know. They're all turning each other onto the same bands to protect their, to protect their positions, you know. If they don't sign the band, at least they were, they were in the running, you know. So, everybody kind of was hearing about this video with the, the semi-naked women. And none of the major labels would, would, uh, would touch it because... Um, because of the gay angle, you know, of, uh, with, with Holly and Paul being quite overtly fruity, I would say, <laughs> at the front of the band. And, you know, you're, you know, it's it's kind of easy to forget how conservative times were then, you know, that, you know, the, being gay was, uh, you know, it was... Um, it wasn't. It wasn't. As, it wasn't received as as uh, as it is these days, is it? You know, it was um, seeing something being a bit wrong with you or what have you. And uh, so it's when we get we end up getting offered this deal by Trevor Horn and uh, and starting his new label. And when we, whilst we all had quite varied tastes between the five members of the band, in terms of production. He was one who we thought, you know, if we could, if we could ever get, a, if we could get a record deal, you know, he'd be the guy who'd, who'd uh, who we'd want to produce it because his records sounded fantastic. And we're basing this on things like uh, the dollar, you know, the stuff he did with Dollar, and also with uh, Malcolm McLaren, and and then like just before he signed us, of course, the work with ABC. And they were, they were fantastic sounding records and with, uh, you know, a real grandeur about them. You know, you could, you could, you could tell a Trevor Horn production at the time. So uh, when it turns out that he wants to sign us, it, was, it seemed like a perfect fit, apart from the fact that it was the worst deal in the world. But, you know, 
Spurs fans had a terrible deal, and I'm sure we weren't the last. And it was uh, it was a case of well, look, none of the, none of the majors uh, really want to touch you. Um, this is what's on the table, so it's up to you. The lawyer says the deal stinks, but it's the deal that stinks or no deal at all. So we took the deal that stinks, and the rest is history. Now. What made the deal so bad? Was it just uh, residuals or, or uh, cutting? What made it so bad? The percentages of it, you know. But, um, but I mean, the, the thing what, what a lot of people don't understand about about the recording industry is they think that, like, you know, if, uh, if you get a number one record and, and someone goes in a shop and buys that single for a pound, then that pound note goes to the band. But it doesn't really work like that, you know. It, it's... Uh, we have to. We have, the bad thing about the deal, really, in a nutshell, is we were signed to ZTT, uh, which meant the budget for recording anything was as much as they wanted it to be, and we were recording in their studio. So, you know, by the end of the band, uh, we, we we made the second album, but uh, we incurred recording costs of eight hundred thousand pounds, and most of that was done with Trevor messing about the studio for six months. You know throwing feces at the wall, I'll be polite, I won't swear, and seeing what sticks. And of course we have no you know, if he was if he was doing a deal if he was say doing another ABC record and he'd have been doing uh, he'd have been doing that for phonogram, he'd have been given a budget of, you know, you've got a hundred grand to make this record and when you spent that money that record's finished. Whereas having his own studio, he was allowed to uh, spend as much as he liked and of course once we had the initial success with Relax that kind of gave him carte blanche to spend that money and, and to be fair you know you're not really I'm 20 years old 2021 Mark I've heard about 20 you're not really uh, you're not really keeping an eye on that kind of thing at the time and you know they were very nice to our original manager they kind of froze him out because you know he he'd be the guy going hey what about these costs you know you're spending thousands and thousands of pounds here and uh, basically they just refused to deal with him and and we were we were we were kind of presented with a fate complete really we, we've got to get rid of the manager because the man and, and to be fair he, he could have made it very very awkward for all of us you know and he didn't he just walked away from it went look you know I love all your lads. I love your lads, and 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 uh, I'm made up that it's happening for you. But I can't, I can't be involved in this because it's going to be to your detriment. And he kind of stepped away from it, which kind of suited ZTT a little bit. But um, but you know, I'm, I'm in my fifties now. I can't be really, I can't be really looking over my shoulder uh, about you know things that happened years ago. Where we are is where we are, and how things happen. You know, if they, if you do, it's the sliding doors thing, isn't it, Steve? If you go another way, who's to say what this, you know the success you had would have ever happened? And it's the success was down to, uh, uh, you know, that whole mixture of of the three lads in the band with their what the music they liked with with Holly and Paul and with what Trevor Horn and other musicians brought to the table in that and the technology at the time. And it, I mean, the only, looking back at it now, the only thing that that you know pisses me off, and, and probably a couple of the other guys, is is that nobody gives us credit for anything, you know. And uh, that's kind of hard to take, you know, when you when you've got when you've got people telling you you can't play, and it's like, well, you know, I would never claim to be uh, Jeff Beck, but I'd like to see somebody. You know, stand next to Marco too when he played that bass solo in the middle of Born to Run. Tell him he couldn't play. He just stuck a face, stuck a Fender Precision round the head. And you know, this whole idea of us that being the puppets of ZTT and it was all down to him. He didn't sell the records. He didn't write the records. We were the ones who went out and sold this thing. You know, we went, we went the monkeys. We didn't turn up for an audition. You know, we're going to get two gay guys and three lunatics. <laughs> and that's that's kind of a that's kind of disappointing. But you know, you, it, it, it's, it's you know these things live on, don't they? And uh, I've kind of got to the point where I'm tired of correcting people. Oh yeah. Anymore. Well, it's funny because you say they live on, and I I you know recently saw one with a uh, 
with a, the Frankie Says Relax shirt. Um, what was it like for you, though, when you're 20 years old and Relax is just blowing up? I mean, you must have... It must have changed your life drastically. And how do you keep your head together at 20? Because there's probably every bad thing was not, and, and bad thing in a good way was probably thrown at you. Well, I'd, I'd, put, I'd put that question back to you, Steve. I'd say if you're 20 years old, everywhere you go, somebody wants to take you out to a party. You go around the world. You do. You, you're on top of the pops. You know, once you try to come off, we were on top. We were on top of the pop. I think it was number one for nine weeks. We were on top of the pops like five of those nine weeks, and uh, that was. It was like um, you don't really, you don't really have time to reflect on what this is happening. You know, you just turn around at the mates and the guys in your band going, "This is great, isn't it? This is great." And it, it's only. Uh, it's only afterwards that you kind of you look back on it and go, "Wow, you know that was pretty, that was pretty amazing." What we done? I mean, it was it was interesting when I come to write the autobiography. Of that, like the amount of information that is out there now, that is just a click away for you to be able to to just you know look back and, and check things. But at the time, you're just in the eye of a hurricane, and you don't know you don't know how long this hurricane's going to be spinning for. So you're just you're just on it and, and enjoying it, you know. It's um, there was no casualties really, you know. I know I know that people, you know, that people get involved in drinking drugs, but you know, I think I think a lot of people who, who go down that way, and, and I don't say this as a criticism, it's like addiction, addiction is an, an illness for people, and, and and if you have that within you. You know whether whether it's shopping or it, it's a bag of it's a, you know a, a bag of glue or if it's cocaine or if it's heroin it's or it's alcohol. I, I think if um, it, you've got to, you've got to have good support from the people around you, and, it, and it's about you know it's about the people who brought you up, and that's what they, that's kind of like what defines you, isn't it, as a person? And you find a lot of people who slip into addiction to uh, are trying to. Uh, fill holes for something that they haven't got in the first place, I guess. Or they, or they're running away from something, or trying to block out something. And I don't think any of us had that, you know. Whilst, whilst Holly and Paul haven't been, you know, being too gay, being openly gay in Liverpool in in the 19, late 1970s, couldn't have been very easy. It's they both handled it very well, and you know, it's not something that's going spinning off. It's just. Uh, the only the only downside of it is I think you think it's going to last forever, and um, of course nothing lasts forever, does it? No. Well, it's funny you mentioned uh, Paul and Holly being gay. Did that reflect upon you too? Because as you said, being gay back then, it wasn't a it wasn't a thing. Like now, it's fine, and it is. It's always been fine, but people weren't out about it. Did people think you were gay, and did you get a different kind of crowd? And did you guys get hassled at some shows because you had two gay or two gay people in the band? Do you know what it was? Um, I, I, I remember my mother asking me if I was gay because it was in the sun, and I said no, mom, I'm not, and that was the end of that. Um, in terms of me, in terms of me uh, being in a band with two gay guys, I was brought up to, to respect people. Uh, my father was uh, was a, a, a staunch trade unionist, and, and uh, you know someone who really believed in equal rights, regardless of race, creed, colour, or orientation. You know, and uh, they're just people. I don't think that's 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 what it is. Whether they're black, they're gay, whatever, it, it, they're just people, and. Um, I think that tolerance, tolerance is something that is uh, is 
pubs and uh, turning up outside your, 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 your gigs with billboards. But we were only we were playing, you know, comparatively small venues, really, compared to like what Culture Club and that were doing. So, and, and the people who were, were into us were, were um, they were largely Anglophiles, probably like yourself, you know, who, who had an eye on what was coming out of the British Isles and, and that kind of music. And uh, people who were looking outside, look, looking across the oceans to find different kind of vibes are usually pretty tolerant people, you know. If, if, if their ears are open to something thousands of miles away, then so are their arms and their hearts, you know, that's, that's how I kind of look at it. Right now, let me ask you, um, you know, we had talked about your, the earlier in your career. What was it like for you to be on top of the pops? I mean, because everyone seems to have, who lives in, uh, in England has grown up with that show. What is it like to be on it? It was, yeah, it was ama- it's amazing. It was um, because that's your ch- that was the church. That was your church from, from, from the age you were into music, you know, to... Um, was you would be watching Top of the Pops on a Thursday night and you'd, you'd be sitting there in front of the TV uh, with a little crappy cassette recorder telling your mum, stroke dad, stroke sister to shut up because you were trying to <laughs> record Slade off the telly to a little condenser mic. But at the first time um, we did Top of the Pops, one of the reasons I, I, wanted, I picked up a guitar because I was a huge Slade fan. And then, of course, this is back in the mid-70s. And in, I think it was the we first did Top of the Pops in about December 1983. And what had happened here during that, that summer, Slade had had a bit of a comeback. Um, I think they, they'd been on tour in America with Ozzy Osbourne. And I think Ozzy had, Ozzy had pulled out of playing Redden because he wasn't well, and Slade played and they absolutely smashed it and it led to like a bit of a rebirth and they were on top of the pops doing my oh my so here's me on top of the pops in the bar upstairs on the roof me and Mark O'Toole standing at the bar talking to Jimmy Lee and Don Powell and and they're talking to us like we're their contemporaries you know we're not just these like rag asses from Liverpool. Oh yeah, mate. I heard your song and all that. Yeah, it's great. And it, it was um, that was incredible. Being in the studio itself, it was very small, uh, and there doesn't appear to be a lot of people in there. And um, you would, they would all get pushed from one stage to the other. It was a very long day. You would have to do about six rehearsals from so you'd be in there from about say 9 30 in the morning and uh, you would start and, and then you'd have you'd have three or four camera rehearsals and then there'd be a dress rehearsal and then you would actually be, maybe another dress rehearsal with the cameras and then you would actually record the show i think it used to go out it used to record it on a wednesday and it would go out on a Thursday. But, you know, to go to the BBC, to be turning up there in, the, in, a, in a limousine was uh, was fantastic. Um, it was, you know, the, the, as you say, this is, this is the way you'd seen your Roxy Musics and your David Bowies and, and, and Slade and Gary Glitter and Moors and all, all of these, these, these bands that, you know, formed your music taste and formed your use and now you're in the church. And they're going to be 13, 14, 15 year olds watching you perform. And, and they're going to be feeling the same thing as you did 10 years previously. That's a, ma- that's a major buzz, you know, it, it is a major buzz. Now, you know, Relax was such a big hit and it got banned from some English radio. Do you look back on that now and think it's a joke because all the stuff they get away with now? Yeah, but you know that's that's kind of that's kind of times, isn't it? You know, it's like I was saying before. We live in very different times now. Um, we, we, it, it, things are a lot more liberal, and people are kind of a lot more accepting in, in most parts of the world. Um, uh, I'm not sure if that's the case in parts of Trump's America, right. but, um, or even parts of Nigel Farage's UK, mate. I can't be, I can't be, I can't be alleging that at your, uh, yourself and your country. 
not too good out here without, without having it back here. But um, it's uh, I, I do I listen to songs and lyrics in songs and think why this was banned. Well, actually, the, the thing with it being banned from the BBC, it's already been played a lot of times, and it was basically, I think, what had happened is Mike Reed had come home from work, and uh, he was the DJ who'd thrown it across the studio in a fit of peak. He'd come home from work and was uh, found his kids watching the the video that was banned, you know, which was, which was quite homoerotic, shall we say. And I think that was the fact that he got upset by it and he, because he was such a big DJ at the time, it was felt that the BBC had to back him because of his outrage when... Uh, when really, I think I think maybe the gay angle was something to do with it. But uh, it was, I mean, it wasn't really banned. It was, they said it was withdrawn from the playlist. And, you know, and a year later, we actually played it on Top of the Pops. And, you know, the, the people who, who, uh, who worked at Top of the Pops, uh, predominantly Michael Hale, who was the producer, was, was fantastic to us, you know, and... and it was requested that we, we did the end of the year show and he said, will you play relax? And our initial thing was, you know, like, no, we won't. We've been banned from playing it on the BBC. And then our manager said, look, you know, the people at that top of the pops have, have never did, you know, have never done you bad. They all love having you on the show. They give you a bit of free reign to do the odd thing here and there. I mean, there was an episode of Top of the Pops where it went out live. And it's only just kind of surfaced recently. It was, it was, uh, we were doing two tribes and we pulled guns out on, on stage, like uh, fake, you know, replica handguns. And um, of course, Michael Hills put his hand up and gone, oh, it's absolutely outrageous, you know. It's terrible that, that the band has done this. But secretly, he was delighted because he knows it's made, it's going to make great television and people are really going to be talking about this. And he's absolutely powerless to do anything to stop it because of because of the time it went out. It was it was going out live, which is why we did it. And uh, and whilst he he might have uh, faced the director general of the BBC and said like, oh, you know, it's shocking and all that. I know for a fact he was absolutely delighted with it. You know, he was very pleased with with, with, with us pulling the guns out because it's it makes for great TV, doesn't it? It's controversy. It's it's. Uh, I say that that clip have been missing for years. It's only um, on the BBC iPlayer, uh, BBC Four on Saturday nights over here. They've been rerunning all the old top of the pops, and, it, and it's surfaced again. And I think it's out there, but it was. Um, songs were going to number one when the album came out does that yeah. make you have a feeling of invincibility as a band well like, uh, I think of it not just a, not just as a band mate. when you're 20 when you're 20 21 years old you think you're invincible anyway and throw and throw, throw uh, you know three three number one records under your belt you're now superman you know you think you're, you're, you think you're out of principle but as, as I said to you earlier though you don't really have time to think about it because it, it, it's it, it's only when I look back at it now and, and see the achievements of, of having a number one that was the, you know two times at number one for nine weeks and then on the back of that relax going back up the charts and having number one and number two the only other person who's done that was John Lennon and he had to die before that happens you know so I think those achievements, uh, uh, I'm very proud of, of those kind of things. They're the things that will last forever. And, and because, like, the chart is basically irrelevant now, you know, it, it's it's there. It's like frozen in amber forever. And, and the, the things we achieved and the sales we achieved were, um, you know, they're, they're the things that will live on and what people remember. 
Now, I want to ask you, as you said, it was a crazy time because I'm a guy from the 80s, too. Tell me, in the height of your of the band's uh, success, tell me one of the craziest stories of something that happened to you. Uh, a crazy story. I think, I think, uh, I think, not was with you, but I think one of the, one of the, uh, not this is, there are way too many, a crazy story. Um, let's see. I'd say probably one, one of the highlights, all the way through our world tour, uh, which, which terminated in Japan, the, um, our road crew had been learning to play relax. All, all the tanks and that, they could all play. So, um, when we finished the final gig, in, uh, the, the last gig in Japan, um, the crew said, well, the, the encore would be relaxed and the stage would be in darkness and there would be a spotlight on Holly. And he would go, and do his thing. And then the track would start, so... We go back out for the encore and Holly walks out and he's, he's speaking to the crowd and he doesn't realise that we've all left <laughs> and the crew have taken over the instruments. And actually we're now in the front row uh, in front of them. And he's, he's oblivious to this, he's just singing a song, he hasn't turned round. And then when he does turn round, he realises that the crew are playing the instruments and then all the other members of the of the crew have just come on stage and he looks down in the uh, in the front of the stage and there's me, Mark, Pez and Paul all just flipping them to bed <laughs> and because the audience see see all of these people on stage this this is kind of like a cue for a stage invasion which is something that um, never happens in Japan you know they're all, they're all so in, in, incredibly reserved you know they, they used to applaud the lights changing colour and stuff like that you know it, it was weird so next minute we got this whole stage invasion and uh, Holly drops the microphone and walks off and the guy who did who used to do the slide shows on tour a guy called John Rinaldi I'll never forget this John picks up and he was like the quietest guy you know he looked he looked like he lived at home with his mom and his cats. And <laughs> suddenly, John, John Rinaldi uh, picks up the microphone and just starts giving it 10 nil. Just, you know, really goes for it. But, the, you know, the, the whole thing was is littered with, with with mad little stories like that, you know. The, uh, you know, especially the, before, before we did a big tour uh, in, the, in the UK, because we hadn't done a lot of gigs, it was decided the best thing for us to do would be to go to America at the end of 1984 and go and play some club gigs and get uh, our stagecraft together. And, and we took a massive, we took our own production to these tiny clubs, you know, we played to places like the Ritz in New York, the Metro in Boston, all of these places where, where people would just turn up and use the house PA and the house lights. We brought our own lights and stage. And, and the best thing about being in America at that time was um, we were accessible. So, that, so you, you, we were playing these club gigs and people people would be hanging around outside and they'd say, like, hey, do you want to come back to our, our, our campus? You know, this I think we were in Philadelphia somewhere. And... and we basically all had a, a rule that we would, when you when you used to check into a hotel, uh, especially me, Mark and Pat would always hang out together, that you would pick up a book of matches off the, off the reception, and in the back of the book of matches, you would have a hundred, one of us would have a hundred dollar bill. And that's your emergency. You're never going to be more than a hundred dollar cab ride away from safety. <laughs> you have the address and the means to get to the address. But those, some of those times were just incredible. Like, you know, just being taken out to some university campus that's about 40 miles away. I so it's gone, yeah, we got some beers and we got some mushrooms. And we're just hanging with these people and, and the hospitality. You know, the, the Americans are renowned for their hospitality. And, and that was the greatest thing. That was the adventure. And, and for me... What else I can say, I've been to most of the major cities in America, kind of like a U-shape from across the bottom 
body, your body is incredibly resilient. But I, I do have a, I do have a yearning to go back to the states and and revisit those places. Um, you know, like have, have like a little six seven week road trip and and go to the places I haven't been. Like I've never been to Alabama, never been to Nashville, never been to Vegas. So there's a lot of places that I'd like to go. So maybe maybe at some point in the future I'll do that. That's awesome. Now, 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 what made you guys break up? Everything seemed like it was going great. You were a giant. You know, you had these hits. What happened? What was the reason why you broke up? Uh, because one person was not, the one person was refusing to push the balls up the hill. That's kind of like, isn't that always the way? Somebody gets ideas above their station. I mean, it's, it's um, I, I could never understand I don't know yourself, Steve, whether you whether you played sports when you were young or whether you still play sports now. I think if you play sports and you're a team player, you know about the t- about being in a team, being part of a team, and, and solidarity and comradeship. But and it, it took me being 20, to say being 21, 22, going up to 23 by the time this whole thing caved in and you're looking at the guy the, the guy who's the singer and the band is going why, do, why isn't he like us why, why? and, and it, it was hard to understand that you would think like he's just why is he being like that he's just being like that because he's horrible and I never understood it took me until I read this book his autobiography that I understood that some people are just not team players and and, if, and again it, it goes back to that to how you brought up I, I don't think I don't think his brothers and his father were too enamoured with the fact that Holly was gay uh, being being a gay man a young gay man in Liverpool would have been incredibly difficult in school you know you're terrorised in school every day you're getting name calls you know you're getting you're getting the odd beat near and there so you're not going to be a team player and and that's disappointing and and I, it's only as, as you get older and you get a bit more mature and you start to understand these things and so I've always kind of cut them a bit of slack uh, uh, until recently and then I just thought you know what it's just not a nice person it's just I, I wouldn't you can tell if I never spoke to him again I, I wouldn't give a toss whereas did any of the other guys uh, absolutely uh, you know Paul Rutherford never had to cross words with him you know, in over 30 years still speak to him now uh, speak to Mark get the occasional email off Mark you know he's my cousin I'm in touch with him and Ped you know there's, there's odd bits of business that that are bands related that come up here and there, different kind of things, and, and I speak to him and I have the occasional beer with him. But, um, you know, I've got no desire to speak to him ever again. Now, when the band broke up, you're a young man. What happens to your identity? Are you lost in those early years because you were so used to being on, you know, a pedestal? Because we put musicians on pedestals. What ha- what went through your psyche? When uh, me, Mark, and Pat decided to carry on with, it, with another singer, a guy called Grant Bolt, who's still a good friend of mine, um, you kind of got this, like, once again, it's, it's like that invincibility. And you think that, you know, we, we, we were in this band and uh, we're going to walk into another record deal and it's going to be great. And we've got this singer and he's, he's even better than Holly. He's... Uh, his sounds and he, he actually wants to be in the band with us. But I said, I think from about from about the first three records, I don't think Holly really did. Um, and then you get that realization that actually, no, you, you, nobody wants to know. And uh, and by the way, all that money you thought you had, you haven't got. So like within within about three years, the band splitting up. There was a there was a, an economic crash in this country. I'd moved from the centre of London to the outside of London, to the suburbs, and basically had to sell my house. Uh, sold the house about two weeks before it was due to be repossessed. Sold it with still on 35 grand, and was on the door. I was, I was claiming unemployment benefit and housing benefit. 
I had a one-year-old baby and a newborn, and I was living in a rented accommodation and taking my milk tokens down to the supermarket. So that was like a that was like a reality check. <laughs> <laughs> so it's um, you, you, you know you're with having your own property and thinking this is all great, and and you realise actually you're not going to make any money because you owe £800,000, which you've got to pay back out of your 8% of retail. So this is, this is this goes back to what I was saying before, people under, people's understanding of, of the record business. You know, we didn't make any money from record sales until five years after the band had split up. And, uh, and that was like... That was, I ended up getting a um, skint and I was, I was doing a bit of a, I'd gone back to being a self-employed electrician, very good electrician, but terrible businessman. You know, we go around doing jobs for old women and chanting them like a 10, I want to be in there all day, you know, just, just not a businessman. And um, so then in 1992, the Frankie Greatest Hits comes out and we're on, we're on a quarter royalty rate for that because it's a compilation song. We're on 2% of retail. And we've recouped and, and I, get a, I get our first check for records royalties. We've still got some publishing money in that time because the, the publishing advance we signed was like, I think it was about 500 quid between us, you know, it was, it was nothing. So we didn't, you know, by, by the time the last was a hit, that was all being recouped. But um, the records royalty side of it, um, I get this check comes through, and, and whilst this uh, this recession has wiped me and me messes out, it's it's I've suddenly got a, a a check for fifty grand that's come through me door for this greatest hits thing, and it enabled it enabled us to get back on the housing market um, and, and of course because of the recession the, how, the housing market was in recession too so stuff was pretty cheap and uh, I mean because when this recession happened I was saying like you know my mortgage doubled from 800 to 1600 pounds in about three days you know it was just mental and both me and my wife said no we're not, I'm never going to have another mortgage unless I can pay what I'm doing by driving a taxi or something and then I got there, we got this check, and uh, which enabled us to buy a house. We were paid for half of a house, and we got a mortgage for the rest. And um, I just finished. We we just finished paying for it in in February. So that's that's the end of that story. <laughs> now, um, now earlier you said to me because when we were uh, messaging back and forth. You said you have band practice. I know you've done solo music. Do you have a band now, or what have you been doing since no, the band I, broke up? I've made uh, I've made four solo albums, written an autobiography, produced a couple of records, played on a couple of records. Um, my stuff's out there if you want to find it. Um, I've got one more record in me, uh, which is basically well, at the time I bought the house. Uh, I also was able to get a, a recording studio sorted, which basically I built myself for with a ten grand investment in equipment, and that kind of enabled me to record my own music and collaborate with other musicians. And what's I've got one more record. I've got, I've got, my next record is going to be called Angry and Finchley because that's where I used to live in London. Uh, but it's uh, because I am angry. And um, when people ask me why I'm angry, my response is, why are you not? <laughs> there, is a lot, there is a lot to be angry about in this country at the minute. And uh, my next record is political, and it's angry. And, and I think that'll be me done. I'm about to, uh, this time next week, I'll be starting a training course to become uh, a wedding and funeral celebrant. That's what my new career is going to be. And I'm going to make music for fun, like everybody else. Instead of, uh, you know, I'm, 
been, I've been, bang, I've been banging my guitar on the door of indifference for a very long time, and it's kind of like wearing a bit thin. And recently, I, uh, I played a couple of gigs with some guys who I played with a while back. They're, they're, if, if you if people, if your listeners want to find Nasher and the Soldiers of Love, they're an absolute banging trio of musicians, and and we really melt some faces. And it's like, once I've had a taste of that again, I really don't want to go back to playing on my own acoustically because I'm very, I'm very good at it, and it's too easy, and and it's not as rewarding as playing with a band. It's too easy for me to play, to deliver an eight out of ten. With really, I'm not, I don't say that like in an arrogant way. But I've been doing it for a long time and I'm very comfortable in front of an audience and, and addressing an audience. I don't get nervous, which is why this idea, I think I'm going to marry and bury people instead and, uh, <laughs> and have some fun. But I've just moved back to Liverpool two months ago and there's a, there's a gentleman here who's, uh, for me, is the greatest soul singer ever to come out of Liverpool, a guy called Peter Dixie Deary. And uh, I saw him last Christmas and I said to him, when I come back to Liverpool, I'm coming for you and I'm, I'm going to make a record with you. So we've got a, we've got a general election coming up um, in this country in, in the next six weeks. And uh, one of the songs I've written for my next album is called Good Men Do Nothing, with the chorus being Evil Will Thrive When Good Men Do Nothing. And it's about, it's about homelessness and, uh, in this country, and which is absolutely shocking, the amount of homeless people in, in Liverpool, in London. Uh, it, it, it's appalling in, in this day and age that we've got people sleeping on the streets, you know. And you have people sticking spikes in the, in, in the, in the doorways and on park benches to stop people sleeping on them. You know, what are, where are we going? Where are we at as a human race if we can't look after the most vulnerable? And for me, that is definitely the seeds, the sprouting seeds of Thatcherism in this country of that no such thing as society. You just worry about yourself, selfishness, and uh, the breakdown of community and I'm alright Jack stroke Jacqueline and I, and I hate that and so I had this idea that the rehearsal today was just to go through the track with the bass player so I think we're going to record this track and uh, I think we're going to we're going to release it a couple of days before the election maybe a week before the election with the proceeds going to at, um a local homeless charity here because it's absolutely it, it absolutely breaks me in half to walk to city centres here. I mean, especially you know we have this we have this attitude now is that oh some of them are professional beggars and it's like you know what how dare you try and dilute dilute my compassion or burst my compassion bubble by making me question everybody I give a coin to, you know what I mean? I'm not, I, I walked through Liverpool City Centre the other day, there's two guys dressed in camouflage gear, ex-soldiers, sitting out in the pouring rain, sitting on the pavements in the pouring rain. And then when you think about these people, you know, these people were fighting for the freedom of this country. They've been sent to fight political wars for for the elites of this world, the Halibans of this world, to, for people to make money out of overthrowing governments for oil and for, for personal gain. And, you know, God knows the traumas that they've seen, the, the, you know, the nightmares that come to them when they close their eyes and try and sleep. And they're just cast, just left on the side of the road, like discard as rubbish it's it's absolutely appalling and uh, I, I just I just I despair I despair at the, at the agenda of of the press and the media in this country the supposed impartial BBC are just an absolute joke and no no more than than a barker now for the Conservative Party and the fever that, to quote my favourite comedian Bill Hicks, the fevered egos, we need 
to rid the world of these fevered eagles, the Trumps and the Farages and the Johnsons and the rest of them. And you know what? These people are destroying Corbyn. A man who, if you look, has been on the right side of history every time he's been a, he's been in a, he's, he's been in, in his job as an MP. He's been proved to be right, and it's it's a scandal. It's just shocking. It upsets me, and that's why I'm angry with Finchley. Sorry, Steve, I've gone off on one day. Oh, no, it's fine, it's fine. Well, we know where your next record's coming from. And, you know, we do deal with the, the homeless situation over here, too. I lived in L.A. for years, and I just moved back to the Philadelphia area where I grew up two years ago. And I see it all the time on Facebook, my friends who have lived in L.A., and I saw it when I was leaving. It's just unbelievable. You know, I try to tell people back here what the scene, the homeless scene is out there, and they don't believe it. And it is just crazy. But hopefully your song will raise some money, and you're going to raise some money and give it to the homeless shelters out there, and maybe we'll have a solution in the future. We, we need uh, we really need a revolution and, 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 and I have I have no hope really of a revolution it, it's what is required to turn this around is a revolution and uh, the vested interests you know well, look, people will, will be up to our ankles in water mate and there'll, be, there'll still be people denying climate change and, and what is required to stop this is to stop using oil and oils our oil props up the finances of the world. You know, our pensions from everything, the, you know, the stuff that's being laid down on the roads to the pensions and the hedge funds of everything are all propped up by oil. And we can't suddenly make oil useless overnight. And yet, it, it is that kind of reaction is what is, what is required. But uh, I, I think for me, uh, politically in this country, Corbyn is, is, is the last one. And he's been smashed for three years by a mainstream media who will call him a Jew-hater and an anti-Semite. And it's just nonsense. And yet, you tell you tell a lie enough, people believe it. You know, they just that a, a lie goes around the world before the truth puts its boots on. And this is where we're at. We're at the people, and, and social media doesn't help. You know, social media, people just think because I have a platform to have an opinion, I can put my dumbass bullshit opinion out there. Well, it's with like, without, and share utter nonsense without fact-checking it. And that doesn't help either. You know, pe- people now think they're educated and informed because they read the Daily Mail, or the Daily Hile, as I call it. And it, it's depressing. It really is depressing. The world is not a night. And then you look over the other side of the pond, and I mean, God, you know, Trump and and make make America great again. What was it ever great? Was it was it ever great for most people there? You know, the the reason why he's got into power is because it's not great, and because the common man has, has been as as voted in Republicans and Democrats and switched from side to side and gone. This is bullshit. None of these people do anything for me. So, so I can see why why he would get a shout. You know, well, we've tried these other clowns. Right. You know, why not? Why not give this clown a go and see how he gets on? And, and you know, he's just completely changed the game. He just says outrageous things that are complete lies. And yet, the only people who are calling them out... And the people who don't support him, and by, and by the time they call him out, he said something else outrageous. It just lurches from one ridiculous statement to another. And it, in a way, it's kind of genius. But you, before that election, I remember hearing a guy on the radio over here, and he was a, he was a truck, he'd written a biography about Trump. And I, I remember his words, and it's it's seemed to have been proven correct. He said, I'm not sure that being president of the United States is big enough to fill the hole in Donald Trump's ego. Exactly. Well, I want to thank you, Brian. Uh, it's great talking to you. I, I love your passion. I see your posts on Facebook. You, pass very, you post very passionately on your politics. And uh, and your your biography, autobiography, can we find that online? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it was... It turned out to be a kind of fruitless exercise. There's a, there's a, there's a, you can get my audio book on Amazon, which is written, as just says, relax. I recorded it myself. And as a man uh, who must be very used to um, editing his own audio, you know how horrible and hateful.
like to sit there in a room and read my own audio book when all the creativity has already been done. Right. So if you've listened, if your listeners have enjoyed listening to me talk, then then the the audio book is kind of the way to go because it's it's like uh, it's like sitting up across the bar from me and we're having a chat. Right. It's, it's a bit. It's quite cool. So people, and they say the, the music's out there. You can find me. Go look at National Soldiers of Love. Let that your face. So do people, a bit, do a nice, we do a nice version of Maximum Joy. Great power of love. So, yeah. Okay. Well, people. So Joe, go check him out. Just Google him. Google Brian Nash. Google Nash. That's all you need. Also, keep listening to my show. You can find over 750 episodes at coopertalk.net. Uh, Twitter at Cooper Talk, Instagram at Cooper Talk One. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next week.